0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, focused compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Get the, how's it going today, Jeff? Uh, it, It's it's going okay. How's it going? With you? It's going great. I'm on about five cups of coffee, two Celsiuses, and uh, three cups of green tea. So I'm all jacked up. Monday, the best day of the week because it's when you and I get together and we record the number one value investing podcast in the world. Uh huh. haven't said that one in a while. No. Nope. It is still true. It okay. is still true. Uh, if this is the first time you're tuning in, because we are the number one value investing podcast in the world, uh, hit that subscribe button, both on the podcast side of things and YouTube. Go to focuscompound.com to get access to stock write-ups and follow me on Twitter at Focused Compound. Oh, this is technically our 300th episode. Okay. Congratulations. Cheers. Uh, yeah. Cheers. cheers to some Celsius. Okay. There you go. Right. Cheers, to everybody listening. It's... um. A shot of tequila actually yep <laughs> um yeah we had
1: some complaints about using the solo cups before
0: that's why we, we did to I use use these like, is it's a, use... a fraternity party or what? is there uh, beer in that those. in that red solo cup yeah yeah so, so then we got so we got these now you can't tell cups. what's in here no exactly keep any liquid in there exactly um so yeah check out all the content 300 pretty crazy Can't wait till we get to 3000. So we'll see you there in about 10 years. Uh, (laughs) uh, So make sure you hit that subscribe button if you wanna be along for the ride. So in today's podcast, we're gonna talk about Occam's Razor. Okay. Which is a mental model. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's something that's so interesting to me because through the investing process, some people feel like they need to know absolutely everything about a company. right? When I feel like sometimes that could be analysis by paralysis, but mm-hmm. there you know are I mean there's generally a few KPIs that you typically focus on, okay. right, to the investing process. But we could go through different situations, and I have some things that Buffett and Munger have also talked about. This what Occam's Razor is. It's a mental model um, that's for decision making that basically says that the simplest explanation is usually the right one. Mm-hmm. So like I have a model in my head. If I can't decide for certain things, the answer is probably no. Okay. As simple as that, right? That's like a very simple heuristic. If you can't decide, the answer is no. Okay. If it's not a hell yes, then it's probably a hell no. Okay. And, you know, we, you look at Buffett and Munger's career, and we're going to do a podcast ranting about a lot of stuff that's going on in the market right now. All right. Sometimes people could criticize them because they haven't gotten involved in Bitcoin or NFTs Mm -hmm. or all these crazy, Speculative booms where people have made a ton of wealth. And Buffett and Mugger are just in the old person camp that will will never go to that area. And that's because it's outside their circle of competence. Right. And what we're trying to do here is if we have a distribution of outcomes, you know, over time, mm-hmm. we want to be successful. Right. And yes, you can make a, a zillion dollars on, you know, Bitcoin, Tesla, or all these other things that. probably outside your social competence, but it's getting back to, did you make the right decision in the first place? So you should judge the process as opposed to judging the outcome, right? Because we want to make sure over, you know, a hundred different attempts or whatever, you're more favorable to having a successful life over those a hundred times. So Occam's Razor is interesting to me because it's, uh, you know, the simplest explanation is usually the right one. If you need a thousand to have Excel, page to make a decision you probably should not make that decision right or decide yes right but there's other things as well right so like aquam razor and life so you talk about like mark zuckerberg and uh steve jobs and you as well too right and me with this podcast right (laughs) wearing like black shirts something very simple like that like Uh it, it weighs on your mind i mean why do you wear a bunch of flannel shirts I guess then I don't have to pick out exactly because you don't have to pick out stuff. Um, you know, when it comes to investing, having a too hard pile. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's this idea of focus, right? Saying no to a lot of different ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think that's interesting and you know, typically when you are looking at a company, do you, would you say that that's true? There's probably like four to five things that you try to figure out. Mm -hmm. And you've always talked about how you're worried about catastrophic risk. So like the risk of being taken out of the game. Mm -hmm. So every single company you look at, I mean, if there's cat risk and uh, Alice Schroeder talked about that with Buffett, that's what he cares a lot about. If there's catastrophic risk, he's probably not even interested in it.
1: Yeah, that's a big problem for a lot of companies we look at. Um, It could be that they lack durability, right? So it could be something that's more fashionable or whatever. So it makes it hard for me to invest in on that basis. It could be, a financial thing, you know, We mm-hmm. talk about insurers and banks and things. I like many of them, but obviously if they do some things wrong, they can manage to uh, wipe out their equity over time.
0: Mm-hmm. Buffett in, I believe this was his 1990 letter to shareholders. He was saying the business, or this is actually, who is this, Munger or Buffett? I think this sounds like like Munger. The business schools reward difficult, complex behavior more than simple behavior, but simple behavior is more effective. We haven't succeeded because we have some great complicated systems or magic formulas we apply or anything of the sort. What we have is just simplicity itself. So back of the envelope or nothing. And it gets to this idea. I mean, when people reach out a lot, they always like ask about like DCFs and yeah. you know financial models and all sort of things like that. I mean, what do you what are some things you think you do in the investing process where you apply this mental model? And I do think it's one of the most important models that you could implement in your life and also investing.
1: Uh yeah, I mean the biggest one I would say is ideally you want to uh Invest in an above-average business at a below-average price, and the reason why that's more simple is that if you don't do that, if you either pay a uh, if you either buy a below-average business, uh, or you pay an above-average price uh, for an above-average business, then it can work out. But it does complicate things a lot quantitatively because you have to figure out what the value uh that you should pay for something that's above average is how much more it is and likewise when something is clearly below average how big a discount do you need so it's much easier to buy something that you know to be better than the average business at a price that's lower than average so uh i i would say that's the easiest for the people to simplify the investment process is okay i know this business is better than most businesses and i'm buying it at 13 times earnings or something it's not a big discount but it's something cheaper than most are. And I know it's better. I don't know if it's the best business, but it's better. And if I keep doing that, then I'm going to have success that way. What most people do is ask about things that are um, very cheap, but are known to have real problems or are very expensive, but are known to have a pretty big future ahead of them. And then we have to do a lot of math, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, for because when it comes to those things, you have to do a lot of math to determine if it's, could possibly be worth that could possibly justify that right Mm -hmm. so someone brings tesla and has all these positive things to say about it i don't have negative things to say about the business um it's just a matter of the math of okay can you pay let's say 100 times gross profit or something um what would a business have to look like to justify that and likewise the other way is when someone says well look this business is trading at a couple times free cash flow but it's highly levered and the business is unlikely to be around, you know, and the industry is unlikely to be profitable in five or 10 years or whatever. Then you have to do the math of how quickly you get your cash flows back and all that. It changes things
0: a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, Buffett. And we've talked about this a little bit on the, on the show before, but he says there are two questions you have to ask yourself as you look at the decision you'll make. A, is it knowable? And B, is it important? If it is not knowable, As you know, there are all kinds of things that are important but not knowable. We forget about those. And if it's unimportant, whether it's knowable or not, it won't make any difference. We don't care. So basically, is it knowable and is it important? Yep. If it's not knowable and it's important to the investment case, skip it.
1: Yeah, that's a great thing to think about, both of those, because when I look at write-ups, that's the big issue, is uh, write-ups usually focus a lot on what's knowable instead of what's important. So you have huge sections about um, things that don't really matter mm-hmm. and I try not to do the right that I do I try to say okay I'm going to ignore this entire thing even though we have a lot of information on it if it's nine percent of the company and it's not growing as fast as the rest of the company it really doesn't matter um, you know it it matters a little bit to the valuation but if being right or wrong by nine percent of the value of the entire company would determine our investment then you know it's very borderline to start with so it's not going to be a great investment if we were depending on that amount to do it um, but usually if you read write-ups, you know, whatever the presentation is, whatever you, um, segments they break down, almost equal time will be given to them uh, because of just how much information there is about them, which it doesn't make a lot of sense. What you want to focus on is just those things that are, are important and then whether they are knowable or not. Unfortunately, sometimes, as he said, there are important things that are not knowable. And, you know, those are usually things you can avoid investing in. But, you know, sometimes you might be able to invest in something that is important but not knowable, but that's taking certain probability risks.
0: Yeah, it's – there's little hacks you can use. So, like, Munger talks a lot about inversion. Mm -hmm. That's a hack to me to sort of look into the future and understand what you're up against. There's different ones too, right? So, you know, thinking through – and it's like this whole idea of, like, game theory or chess, Mm -hmm. right? A chess player's eight moves down, you know, the line and you're in – you're thinking about the next move um so there's inversion uh you could do like a post-mortem before right. so how do you get smoked on an investment how does it not work out mm-hmm. and if that happens what could happen right and that's where that that whole idea of a margin of safety comes in yes um you could talk about you know instead of saying you know you're right transition to how do you know you're right and just think through different things from like uh um you know a point of humility um but yeah i mean richard Feynman. i love when he always says you should never ever fool anybody and remember that you are the easiest person to fool
1: yes yep i agree with that
0: absolutely um but uh no it's just it's interesting you know and that's this whole idea of like rationality and that's what rationality is to me is it for whatever it's always stuck with me too samir patel came on the podcast years Mm -hmm. ago and I think I asked him what advice he would give to other people or something along those lines. And he said that, you know, really think long and hard about if you're seeing the world for the way that it is or the way that you want to see it. And that's right. rationality. Um, so I don't know. I mean, this whole idea of the simple decision is usually the best one. If you need, you know, a massive Excel workbook to say yes or no to an investment, you probably shouldn't be making an investment. Mm hmm as Monish has said, and as I love to quote on the podcast, you just keep looking for ideas and every now and then something hits you on the head with a two by four. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of the ideas that I feel like we've invested in, it's been a much more simple. You could write the, the, uh, am of course you could write a lot about the business, but the actual thesis itself, you could put on an index card. And I think that's important.
1: Yeah. And, and because, (sighs) If you get into these other kinds of investments that we're talking about, um, the ones that aren't so simple, the issue that I always have with them is to to evaluate them correctly. There has to be a significant amount of assigning of probabilities, and I don't think people are doing that normally. You know, it's kind of like, well, since I think I can make twice as much as I can lose on this then I should invest in it or something, which may very well be true, but it depends on the probabilities that they have, you know, or we, you know, I talked before about things where we said said, well, you know, do I think that this is likely to end up in bankruptcy? Sometimes the company can be likely to end up in bankruptcy and still be a good purchase because it's so cheap. Um, but those are the kinds of complications that come into it. And it's hard for people, I think, to make decisions about it, especially decisions about buying or, or selling something. In my experience, for instance, almost everyone who sells, uh, let's say a stock like that, if they decide there's a 51% chance of bankruptcy, they sell, you know, once in their mind, it is more likely than not something will file for bankruptcy than they sell, regardless of the price. But obviously there has to be a whole range of prices at which you'd be better off. um, You'd be better off keeping the stock just because it's so cheap. Um, You know, you actually had to factor in what those probabilities are. And that's the same thing with arbitrage things and all of that, which is why for most people, I would say not good choices because they are not, um, they don't fit the simplicity thing that we're talking about or not that they're not simple, but they require a certain way of looking at things. You have to have the right approach to how to think about it. Um, and I think it's very hard for people.
0: Have you ever invested in a turnaround? Um, Because the price was just so cheap?
1: Well, let's see. I mean, I guess it depends on how you define turnaround,
0: um, cause I feel like we've invested in companies that were a turnaround and maybe the situation looks different today because it actually turned around.
1: Yeah. Um, I guess I invested in things that were declining or like their industry had problems. Um, I don't know if they officially call themselves a turnaround or anything like that. I can't really think of examples of that. Um, Yeah, I don't think so.
0: It's just funny when you look at, and we're going through this with a lot of Buffett's earlier investments, they all, the situations, and of course, with the benefit of hindsight, and we're only talking about the good ones. Yeah. They all look like they're very simple in nature, right? When we're talking about like national indemnity, right? I think he bought it for a 10 to 11 times earnings.
1: Uh. Uh-huh.
0: Apple. People call that it was a bargain in plain sight. Now Apple's had a, a huge multiple re rating, whatever. Um I don't know. I just sometimes I feel like people reach for different investments and it's hard when we're in the current market environment that we are now.
1: Right. But he doesn't buy much of anything right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, he's one of the only people that are willing to kind of hoard cash and you know and wait for something. Yeah, but he's done that a few. But that's hard to do. Yeah,
1: I mean, he had to do that before in the in the um, dot com era. He had to do that before when he went up his partnership. So it does require not doing things sometimes, if if that's the case. When you have a lot of money to do to um, invest, sometimes if you have very small amounts of money, it's still possible to pick things out, even though it becomes more difficult. And there are some things you can find. I mean, that's the other thing. Um, It's easier to focus on simple things if you have a fairly concentrated portfolio, if that's the way you want to put it, or at least a longer holding period. What's going to be very hard is if you have a larger portfolio that you're turning over frequently. So Mm -hmm. you, you kind of need a combination of both. Smaller portfolio holding things longer makes it much easier to do these things we're talking about, about the um, simple approach to things, right? Because then you don't have to keep coming with a lot of new ideas. If you have to come with a lot of new ideas, it does stretch things to find those ideas. Yeah. And Buffett has invested in stuff that was a little more complicated when he's had too much cash and not enough ideas. He did all his preferred deals. They did like, I guess, four of them total um in the uh back in the 80s and stuff and then he did more later with um you know with um like g and and bank of america and stuff but before that when he did them in the 80s he he didn't really have enough ideas um but but he's also done some things that worked out okay i guess merger arbitrage and things like that so
0: like when you invested in japanese net nuts, yeah what was the thought process that went there that went into that decision I mean, you. I mean, obviously, you don't speak Japanese.
1: <laughs> right. No, I wasn't going to do any sort of selectivity. I've said that before. The, the reason yeah. why it was so few stocks, it, this is maybe a point we can argue about or people would argue with, but I didn't see the benefit to owning uh, 15 stocks instead of six or something on a statist- statistical basis. It makes most people feel more comfortable, but since I know nothing about the cases— um, i don't think that there's a huge difference if i if we were insuring something or whatever and i knew nothing about it but didn't have real um concerns about adverse selection um then i wouldn't have a problem with sampling 6 out of 15 things um and taking that and saying that's basically the same as having the 15 um uh so there were some added expenses associated with trading it so i just didn't want to do that with a portfolio as small as mine to you know add up a basis point or something of expense um so so i just you know bought 6 and said 15 but i identified 15 and then i picked out the amount that i thought was appropriate for about half the portfolio um and i did select only on the basis of industry so i did select on the basis of industries that i knew were kind of legitimate industries based on what they were like in other countries right so i think i've said that before if it said it was hvac or or um a publisher of legitimate things and stuff like that then i would buy it whereas if it said some weird stuff then i wouldn't necessarily do that um but that was the only logic to it and the things that were more um it, it may have been that what i selected didn't do as well as those other ones would have that wasn't really my goal my goal was just to do as well as japanese net nets you know to get a sample of it sort of like having an index um and you know it, it did fine but of course on that case i didn't hedge and i could have hedged and that would have done better if i did hedge like currency hedge yeah and i knew the japanese yen was expensive but i didn't bother hedging so why not um so this is a good example
0: uh should i have hedged or not
1: that you know is it more simple to hedge or or not
0: so we know the outcome it would have been more successful but let's yes. talk about the actual process that went into it
1: well that's the complication my feeling is that in general, if I'm going to invest in things around the world, um, because of the way I'm selecting them, there isn't much of a benefit one way or the other. If I hedge or don't hedge, there's some slight cost and not hedging introduces some um, variation in returns, which might be desirable. Um, I don't personally care about it, but other people might. Um, it, It may actually make it look less volatile results. Um, because only a portion of the portfolio will be in something that isn't in dollars. Um, I don't think it really makes that big a difference, but then the, the issue would be how much time do I spend trying to figure out if I should hedge it? Um, I guess the, my feeling was there's logically two ways you could go. You could say, okay, I'm going to hedge all the time or I'm going to not hedge all the time. Now, the correct smartest thing to do really on the probabilities is to hedge only in those cases in which you believe you should hedge because currency is too expensive. And if I had done that, I would have done okay because I thought the currency and the Japanese currency relative to the U.S. currency was too expensive. Um, and there are ways of trying to figure that out. But then you can then you're worrying about macro things, right? And you can drive yourself crazy that way uh so that was my thinking on that is should i be thinking about these macro things but there's but in terms of when people ask should they always hedge or never hedge i'm fine with those the only one i would warn people about is deciding each case by case you know because then you're deciding am i becoming someone who's trading currencies basically um to only hedge those cases where it's very expensive
0: yeah somebody actually we're going to talk about it more in the free form but they had a question for hedging currency, and they said that in your Swatch write-up, Jeff states multiple times that the Swiss franc is overvalued Mm -hmm. and should decrease in value. He says, maybe because I have the privilege of hindsight, maybe because I really like the Swiss franc, but I am wondering how Jeff could be so sure of that. He usually seems not so interested in overall economic considerations, but here he seems pretty sure that one particular currency was overvalued. How come?
1: Um, it, it might not have been overvalued, um, but, I, but yeah, it, it was overvalued. Um, <laughs> I mean, it may continue to be overvalued if it's used speculatively by people who want to hold Swiss francs for other reasons to avoid certain other currencies, but was the Swiss franc on the basis of the real economic activity involved with it of its use in the real world for real goods and services overvalued yes it was um but that doesn't mean people don't want to own it for speculative reasons you know that so and that happens with all sorts of different currencies um like what are your thoughts on
0: the us dollar
1: well that's hard to say because i hold things in us dollars so really I look at other currencies relative to the U.S. dollar rather than um, whether it's in a strong position or not. But, yeah, obviously the U.S. dollar is – I mean, that's part of the reason why people – and they could be right – would like something like the Swiss franc. So, I mean, we – I mean, (laughs) there's a whole – theoretical you have to kind of think about the theoretical framework of how you should think about these things what should it be so with currencies there should be a level at which you would say that it should really affect three things right so it should be inflation it should be interest rates and it should be um the actual price levels of today so actual price levels today you can use purchasing power parity we've talked about that Mm -hmm. and it's not hard to figure out things like that and say okay do i think the swiss franc is overvalued or something yes but in the long run, is it possible that the Swiss will have policies that are different from the United States, such that their inflation is lower interest rates, you can also figure out easily, you can go look at them. So that's not a problem. The biggest thing is, are the policies different? So for instance, would people avoid her owning uh, Turkish currency, simply because of the political risk to their central bank and things like that, and would want to own Swiss currency? Yeah, it's possible. Um, so Switzerland's a small country that uh, has a particularly, uh, people are particularly interested in their currency and from other countries and might use it. So it may have features similar to like gold, which I'm always skeptical of because I don't think gold is really that different from other things. Um, and yet it's really popular, you know, I don't think gold is necessarily all that different from copper or something in the very long run. And yet people would prefer to own gold as a store of value. Um, and you know, that's the same sort of thing that you have with Switzerland. I would be careful about it, which is what I said when we did that, which doesn't mean that you have to hedge it and stuff, but I'd just be very careful. There are other currencies like that. I avoided entire countries. um, When oil prices were at certain levels and things, I avoided certain Nordic countries completely uh, because I thought their currency was way overvalued. Yeah, but you could just hedge it. You know, if if it's attractive enough, you can hedge it and mm-hmm. then you can do that and it adds a little complexity to your portfolio. You know, it's the same thing. If I thought... Some market was overvalued. Should I buy a stock in that market and simultaneously hedge the index in that market? You could do it. Um, there's lots of different things like that where you could hedge it out. Uh, but I'd be particular. I mean, it doesn't matter if it, they're at relatively normal sorts of valuations. On all sorts of lists, I think that the Swiss franc at that time would have shown up as one of potentially the most overvalued currencies, or at least one of the most overvalued that wasn't pegging certain things, yeah.
0: I'm kind of curious to hear your version of a one-foot hurdle as opposed to, you know, the seven-foot hurdles that Buffett always talks about avoiding. Um,
1: Well, I talk lots of times on this podcast about uh, investments I made like about 20 years ago, right? When I was you know, a lot younger. So as a teenager, those would be one-foot hurdles. The... La- the During the dot-com bubble and the immediate um, bursting of that bubble, there were a lot of um, one-foot hurdles. And, Just because of the timing of the market, what was going on? Because everything was flowing into highly speculative things and away from things which had dependable earnings every year that weren't big. So anything that was relatively small. So if you go back and look at what Village Supermarket looked like, what J&J Snack Foods looked like, stuff like that... Um, It was really simple compared to the sorts of things you see today at similar multiples. Uh, Today, if you see things at really cheap multiples, for the most part, they have much more serious threats to them. Um, Not true in all countries. There are some countries that I think are are cheaper than the U.S. and that there's more to find that way. But I spent a lot of time looking in the U.S. for them. and, And generally, there's not a lot of really cheap stuff in sort of simple things that aren't that cyclical. You could i mean i've mentioned some bank things that might think is, are cheap but that's highly cyclical right energy things that you might think are cheap but very very cyclical um then you have retail things or real estate things that are have kind of existential threats to them which doesn't you know if they survive then they'll do fine but that's very different from things that were like you know snack foods and, and supermarkets and stuff like that and they're pretty cheap so i think those are the ones that are really easy to clear And um, what about today? I don't see them. I don't see in the U.S. one-foot hurdles. Um, And I don't think Buffett does either. Otherwise, he'd be buying things, unfortunately. That doesn't mean that there aren't good stocks to buy. Um, But they're not simple. If if people turn out to be right about them, it it was pretty complicated what they had to figure out about the future. And that's the risk. Um, And the same thing on the other side. There are some value stocks, but they have some serious issues with them. Uh, And so, you know, some of them have gone up, but they they are things that have real risks with them that aren't that simple. They don't have a lot of earning power, for instance. So they might be good assets, but not a lot of earning power. Um, They might be tied to commodity prices, things like that. Whereas um, it was a lot easier in the late 90s and early 2000s. And the same thing with Buffett buying things. In the 70s, that was the period really where he had it easiest in buying things that were, um, clearing one foot hurdles, like you said, you know, whether it was media things, advertising things, some other stuff like that. There were a lot of cheap stocks, and he was able to buy perfectly good businesses at low prices. The best example of that is Pinkerton's. Mm-hmm. If you look, we're talk book, about that. capital allocation, yeah. Pinkerton's, I think, is the best. If you want to talk about one foot hurdles, I think that's the kind of thing I used to be able to find things like Pinkerton's. Um, that same sort of thing and haven't been able to recently so it's hard but like i said i'm not investing in all sorts of different countries so i'm sure there are lots of other countries besides the us where things are available like that i just don't know enough
0: about them any advice just stay in the course don't reach
1: yeah no th- i mean that's my advice uh it's hard for people to do, though, to actually sit idle with cash. So sometimes yeah. it helps to do other things. Buffett would do other things. That's what he would do. So he did merger arbitrage. He did um,
0: the related hedges. The,
1: yeah. the And he did the buying preferred stock um, that converts, like convertible preferred and stuff like that, um, where you get a guaranteed return, things like that. So you just judge yourself. If you're someone who's very comfortable sitting with cash and just looking at a lot of different things and then deciding that's fine. If not, if you're someone who needs to do stuff, it might make sense to look for things that are, um, that could be not usually what you do. So some more guaranteed return type things or whatever you want to call them, um, where you just have to work out the math that way, pretty simply, those can be risky though, but they're not as risky as buying a, uh, the wrong stock. You know, they're not as risky as buying. Uh, paying a high price for a stock that's cyclical and doing well today and whatever. So, you know, but Buffett had mixed results in a lot of those preferred things and stuff. Good results in arbitrage, but mixed results in a lot of the preferred convertible things. And um,
0: I always expect the same thing. I've had very mixed results in um, more complicated stuff. Got it. Cool. Well, thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us here today. Make sure you hit that subscribe button, both on YouTube and the podcast side of things. Again, three hundred episodes, pretty crazy. Thank you so much for being along with us on the journey. Sometimes people reach out and they're like, I've been listening to you guys since like episode, you know, one through ten. That's always crazy. And I'm like, gosh, I can't even listen to one through ten. <laughs> it sounds so weird. Yeah, so. I don't know if
1: I've ever heard one through ten.
0: Yeah. I don't even really listen to these. You don't? I edit you edit. Them. Edit and okay, upload. Uh, I guess yeah. kind of, but that's that's pretty much it. So it's crazy. We'll see you at episode 3000, 10 years down the line. Okay. We can do it. We can do it. So I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in, the both of us. Thank you again for all the support, and we will see you in the next podcast.